So, uh, well, I mean, this is one of my uh, favourite times of year uh, because we're coming up on an election. Um, how many weeks away is it now until we go to the polls? Four and a half weeks. An extended election campaign. Um, is anyone else like a fan of elections? <laughs> Jordan, what do you like about elections? Uh, I like the election results. I like <laughs> Either way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also just kind of seeing uh, who's, who's going to win, why I try to work out, why people vote the way they do. Uh-huh. All that kind of thing. Yeah, cool. Cool. Yeah, so we've got various different sort of candidates running. You've got um, the Liberals on the one hand who... The big sales pitch is that they're the best people to handle the economy um, and to stop the boats of refugees. Uh, Labor has sort of got the big pitch that they'll stop the boats too and uh, they will give you a fair go. They'll look after you in your job and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and the Greens, they're sort of more on the we'll look after the environment, we'll... Uh, we'll be better than everyone else and we'll make you feel like you're doing the right thing, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, Hillary Clinton in the US uh, is going to tell Americans that she's uh, a safe pair of hands, that she's got the policy skill, the experience to look after America. Um, Donald Trump is going to tell Americans that uh, he can make America great again if you just rely on Donald Trump uh, he will resist the whole sort of Washington insiders game. He'll be the great outsider who will uh, shake the system up. And uh, I guess we're going to spend millions of dollars and millions of human hours sort of working out who's going to be our leader. Um, and I quite like the whole process, actually. I think it's uh, a lot of fun. Um, sometimes uh, it's just like watching your team at the footy. Um, but, you know, having a good leader really does make quite a bit of difference and having a bad leader can be terrible. Um, and so they'll all be out campaigning, telling us that they are the best people for the job. And as it so turns out, uh, we're up to a passage in Judges today that is about an election. Uh, this is just a fluke. We hadn't planned it this way. But uh, up to Judges chapter 8 and 9... Uh, so we're looking at Judges chapter 8, verse 28. Uh, and I thought we might um, start by reading Judges 8, 28 through to um, 8, 35, just to familiarise ourselves with the electorate in this particular election. So does someone want to read that for us? Uh, Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace 40 years. Jerubbaal, son of Joash, went, to, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash, in Ophrah of the Abbey Ezraites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereith as their god and did not remember the Lord their god rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. Alright, so 
We've seen in previous weeks that there's this cycle going on in Judges where uh, Israel has peace, and that's what we see here again. Israel has peace from uh, Midian because God has uh, subdued them under uh, Gideon. And the land has peace for 40 years. But uh, then uh, the issue is what's going to happen again after that? Because typically what happens is that Israel turns from the Lord. And in fact, that's what we see. Uh, They turn, as soon as Gideon is dead, they turn to the Baals again, to Baal Barith, uh, which means the Lord of the Covenant, the Baal of the Covenant. And they don't remember the Lord. And what's going to happen from there? Well, normally the cycle will go into the Lord hands Israel to their enemies. Uh, so what's, what is going to happen? Um, that's kind of the question. Now that the electorate has turned its back on God and on Gideon, who's going to be in charge? Who's going to have power? Is it going to be one of the outsiders again, one of the enemy nations? Well, uh, let's keep reading and uh, we'll read chapter 9, verse 1, down to verse 6. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them, and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he's related to us. They gave him 70 seconds of from, silver from the temple of Baal and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the younger son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. Okay. So here's kind of the answer to who's going to step into the power vacuum now that Gideon's dead and God's rejected. Uh, it's going to be one of Gideon's sons. And so this chapter is kind of like not exactly a new cycle. It's kind of the end of the Gideon story. Uh, but this son who steps up uh, is Abimelech. And although he's Gideon's son, he's a son by a Shechemite concubine. Uh, Shechem being a town that's in Israel, but they're not exactly Israelites. They're kind of Canaanites. It's sort of smack in the geographical center of Israel. Um, And his mother, Abimelech's mother, is a concubine, which is not exactly a wife. Um, Wives have heirs and that kind of thing. And kings would often marry wives as alliances with surrounding nations but a concubine is more kind of like a slave with benefits if you can put it that way Um, that you get to sleep with her but she doesn't kind of have heirs but Abimelech uh, thinks that he would be the guy to rule Israel and he sends out his campaign team he um, goes to his mother's family in Shechem and he talks to his uncles And he uses the classic kind of pitch that 
dictators the whole world over have used uh, as long as we can remember, which is, why don't you just have me in charge? Like, you've got all these other people over you at the moment, but if you choose me, then I'll cut the red tape, I'll get rid of the bureaucracy, and um, you'll just have one guy who runs the thing. And besides, like, I'm one of your guys. Like, my mum is from your town, and wouldn't it be better to have like, me running things rather than some outsider? Um, you know, I'll, be, I'll do the right thing by you. And the Shechemites sort of start thinking, oh yeah, that's actually, there's some merit in that argument. We like what this guy is selling. We can run with this election pitch. But it turns out that this is not your standard kind of democratic election pitch. Uh, this is not your run-of-the-mill pork barrelling. Like, Vote for me and our electorate will get better stuff. It's a bit more sort of Game of Thrones uh, kind of style. So uh, the Shechemites, when they get on board this idea of Abimelech being king, they give him 70 shekels of silver. It's not a huge amount of money. Um, it's not insignificant either. But I think the real significance of it is the number. They give him 70 shekels and he's got 70 brothers. And I think there's something going on there with they're kind of paying him to get his brothers out of the way. And that, in fact, is exactly what he does. So he uses the money to go and hire reckless scoundrels and they roll up to his father's home, Gideon's home in Ophrah, and they hold a night of the long knives. Abimelech drags out all his brothers and he cuts their throats, he kills them all, on one stone, and it's this, it's a literal sort of bloodbath. Uh, it's terrifying, it's brutal, and Abimelech is now the undisputed leader of Shechem, and in fact, he's going to be the leader of all Israel. So the great tree uh, in Shechem, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo crown Abimelech king. It's a pretty ghastly start to his rule, but it's not that unusual in the history of the world. Uh, if you think about in the last century, we've had similar things happen in Russia, uh, Germany, uh, most of Eastern Europe, China, North Korea, um, much of South America and Africa and the Middle East. This is the normal way that power changes hands in much of the world. And, you know, whatever else we think of the Australian political system, we ought to thank God that we don't have that kind of system. But in some ways, I think what is going on here with the citizens of Shechem and Abimelech is not so different from what we are attempting to do in our elections uh, in Australia. So what do you reckon the Shechemites are looking for in going with Abimelech as their king? Yeah, security. Yep. Someone who can... Stability. Stability, yeah. Yep. Someone who gives them what they want. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. And what do they want? Any ideas? Keep the enemies away. Keep the enemies away. 
Yep, stability, like Sam said, security. I think also like having their guy at the top, that their team wins in a sense. Shechem's going to do better out of this. I think that's kind of what we're doing in elections, isn't it? You know, we, we want our team to win so that there'll be benefits for that. We, we want our government to provide security and stability, uh, jobs, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and they're not bad things to want uh, in and of themselves. They're not wrong. Uh, in fact, God made us to have security and stability and uh, all that kind of stuff right from the beginning. But here's the problem that we see in the election of Abimelech by Shechem. It's that the Shechemites have taken all those good things stability, security, etc. And they've actually turned them into a way of rejecting God. So they're looking to get those things from somewhere other than God. Uh, they refuse to trust God as their king. They refuse to let God choose who will be their ruler, which is what's been happening in the book of Judges all the way through, that God raises up a judge this time, the Shechemites decide that they're going to take things into their own hands, that they'll decide who rules and the circumstances in which they rule. And it's one big up yours to God, that they don't care about him, they don't want him around, they just want to do things their own way. Um, and in fact, uh, we see that play out um, in Deuteronomy uh, 17 verses 14 to 20. So they're saying up yours to God, but they're also chucking out the constitution. Because there is a constitution, there is a way of choosing the king that God has set out in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 14 to 20. And the Shechemites set about breaking all of it, really. So they, it says that they must be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. But they don't. They're the ones who just choose Abimelech. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. But Abimelech's not exactly an Israelite. Uh, his mother is from Shechem. And it says that he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Now, we don't find out how many wives Abimelech takes, but we know that Gideon had a number. Uh, he had 70 sons, lots of wives and concubines. And it's interesting when you look at the fact that Abimelech is called Abimelech because Abimelech means my father is the king. That's what Gideon has called his son. My father is the king. And it's a little bit like when dads call their daughters princess. Um, it's not that they really think that you're a princess. They think that they're the king. <laughs> uh, that's kind of what Gideon is saying here, that um, he is the king. His son is called my father is the king. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold, but Abimelech seems to be on the way to doing that. And that when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's supposed to write out a copy of the law and read it all the days of his life so that he'll learn to revere the Lord his God. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't revere the Lord his God. He reveres the Baals. And 
he must not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or the left. But he does consider himself better than his brothers. He's just slaughtered them all because he thinks he's going to be the better king. Uh, and the last little phrase there, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. And you think, hmm, if you break all those things, if you choose a king against the constitution, will he reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel? It's all just one big up yours to God. And it's significant as well uh, where they crown Abimelech king because uh, they crown him uh, at Shechem, at the great tree in Shechem. And uh, anyone know anything about Shechem from the Bible? Slightly obscure. But... Um, it's, Shechem is the first place that Abraham stops when he comes to the promised land. It's the first place that he camps. And we're told in Genesis chapter 12 that he camped by the great tree of Morah in Shechem. And here by the great tree in Shechem, they appoint someone king against all the commands that God has made. And you think, oh, that's, that's really throwing it back in God's face. Uh, a foreigner who's reigning as king over Israel at the very place that God promised Abram that uh, he would have this whole land. That's a little bit like, um, you know, if Donald Trump were to stand up at Gettysburg and say, from now on, we're not having rule of the people, by the people, for the people. We're just going to have me. Or Malcolm Turnbull standing at Botany Bay and declaring himself president for life as he burns a picture of the queen. Uh, that would, that's the kind of thing that's going on here. It's, it's a really, it's a rejection of the constitution and it's a big up yours to God. But the thing is, I reckon, that it's not just Israel who do that. Because um, we all do it. We all give God the finger and we all say to him, Stuff you, God, I'm going to be king. I'm going to be in charge around here. We're all kind of Abimelechs. And at the same time, we're all kind of Shechemites. We're all looking for someone else to be God for us, to deliver the things that only God can give us. Uh, security, stability, hope, a future. And that is really offensive to God, to be looking elsewhere uh, for that to be turning our back on him, giving him the finger like Abimelech and Shechem do. Well, let's uh, read uh, chapter 9, verses 7 to 21, and we'll see what happens there. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on top of the mountain, Gerizim, and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that the Lord may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil, by which both gods and humans are honoured, to hold sway over the trees? Next the tree said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, Come and be our king. 
But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans, to hold sway over the tree? Finally, all the trees said to the thornbush, Come and be our king. The thornbush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thornbush thorn bush, and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abilet king? Have you been fair to Jeroboam and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hands of Midian. But today you have revolted against my father's family. You have murdered his seventy sons on, on a single stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem, because he, would, because he is related to you. So have you acted honorably and in good faith toward Jeroboam and his family today? If you have, make Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out of come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out of you come out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled. Escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. Cool. Thanks, Maddie. Uh, so Jotham, the one surviving brother of Abimelech, gets up on the mountain overlooking Shechem, and he yells out this parable to them. Uh, and it's a parable about the trees holding an election, uh, looking for someone to be the king. Um, uh, who do you reckon the trees are in this parable? Who do they represent? The Israelites. The Israelites, yeah, or the people of Shechem. Yeah, so looking for a king. And um, who do they approach to be king? Various trees. Various trees, yeah. What, what, what sort of trees? Good ones, yeah, like trees like uh, olive trees and fig tree, uh, an olive tree, a fig tree and, um, and a grapevine. You know, what do you notice about those trees? They all produce fruit. They're all beneficial. They're all useful sort of trees. Uh, but all those trees say, no, we don't want to be king. Who do they end up with? Thornbush. The thornbush. What good is a thorn bush? Yeah, <laughs> it's not a lot of good, is it? Um, and uh, he uh, noticed that the thorn bush uh, says, uh, where is it? Uh, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. Uh, now, what do you think about taking shade, uh, taking refuge in the shade of a thorn bush? doesn't provide much shade and you get hurt by it. Hurt by it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's exactly what Jotham is saying about Abimelech, that this guy is not going to provide you the safety and security. He's not going to provide you the comfort that you're looking for. Uh, and it's going to be a very unpleasant experience. In fact, the only thing that thorns are really good for in that culture is you burn them. You can use them as firewood. And so he says... Um, if you've acted honorably in choosing Abimelech and uh, you've treated 
Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and his family with respect, well, wonderful, I hope you have a lovely time. Uh, but of course, he doesn't think that's what's happened at all, that they've treated uh, Gideon and his family with contempt. And he says, let fire come out from the thorn bush and consume you. Let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem. And let fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. So he's basically calling down a curse on them, saying, you know, I hope you destroy each other. And that's kind of what we see in the rest of the chapter. So let's uh, read chapter 9, verses 22 to 41. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by, and this was reported to Abimelech. Now Gaal, son of Ebed, moved, in, moved with his clan into Shechem, and its citizens put their confidence in him. After they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their god. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gaal, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and why should we Shechemites be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son, and isn't Zebor his deputy? Serve the family of Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only these people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, Call out your whole army. When Zebul, the governor of the city, heard that what Gaal, son of Ebed, said, he was very angry. Undercover, he sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, Gaal, son of Ebed, and his clan have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. In the morning at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gaal and his men come out against you, seize the opportunity to attack them. So Abimelech and all his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now Gaal, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance to the city gate, just as Abimelech and his troops came out from their hiding place. When Gaal saw them, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. Zebul replied, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. But Gaal spoke up again. Look, people are coming down from the central hill, and the company is coming from the direction of the diviner's tree. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your big talk now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should be subject to him? Aren't these men, aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gaal led out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him all the way to the entrance of the gate, and many were killed as they fled. Then Abimelech stayed in Aramah, and Zebul drove Gaal and his clan out of Shechem. Cool, thank you. So uh, after three years of Abimelech being king, God stirs up animosity between him and the Shechemites uh, in order to revenge the slaughtered sons of Gideon. And so the Shechemites set men on the hilltops and kind of turn the area around Shechem into a no-go zone. Uh, they start, it starts turning into a sort of Northern Ireland during the Troubles or South Central Los Angeles or something like that. Uh, something where you don't really want to go somewhere that Abimelech, uh, they think, really doesn't want to go either. And then this new guy, Gaal, 
son of Ebed turns up on the scene and he's got an election pitch as well and the Shechemites get on board with him and uh, they're throwing this party in the temple of their god, Baal Barith. And uh, they're eating and drinking and um, Gaal sort of engages in some drunken boasting about how great he is and how pathetic Abimelech is. Like, who's Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son? Isn't Zebel his deputy? Serve the family of Hamor, Shechem's father. Um, so Gaal, I think, is appealing to the Shechemites uh, in a similar way that um, Abimelech tried to. He's trying to say, I'm one of yours. And the subtext that's going on comes from Genesis 34, where the original Shechem, the son of Hamor, raped Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And her brothers were understandably enraged, uh, but they set a trap for Shechem and his father and the rest of the people in the city by saying, you can marry our sister if you all get circumcised. And so they said, okay, we'll do that. But while they were still sore from being circumcised, uh, two of Dinah's brothers go through Shechem and they slaughter all the men of the town, including Shechem and Hamor. And I think what Gaal is saying here is, don't settle for a treacherous son of Israel like Abimelech. So now he's saying Abimelech's an Israelite. He's not a Shechemite. You should, uh, you should serve a real son of Hamor, um, a real Shechemite like me, and I'll put Israel back where she belongs. I think that's kind of what's going on. But his boasting doesn't actually stack up because uh, Zebul warns Abimelech and uh, Abimelech comes uh, with his men and uh, he drives Gaal uh, back out of Shechem. Um, and he kills a bunch of Shechemites who are out in the fields as well. Okay, let's read uh, verses 42 to 49. Uh, the next day the people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people were coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance of the city gate. Then two companies attacked those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. On hearing this, the, city, uh, the citizens of the Tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple El Berif. When Abimelech uh, heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up Mount Zalmon. He took an axe and cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, Quick, do what you've seen me do. So all the men cut branches and fell at Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire with people still inside. So all the people in the Tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Okay, and so the first half of Jotham's curse comes true. Uh, almost literally true. Fire comes out from Abimelech and consumes the citizens of Shechem. They're destroyed in this tower that they flee to. Um, and uh, it's just a total disaster for Shechem. Uh, the king who they had chosen ends up slaughtering them all. 
All right, let's read the next bit, uh, verse 50 to 50, uh, 57. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city, had fled. They locked themselves in and climbed onto the tower roof. But Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance of the temple to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me, so that when they so that they can't say a woman, woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. So when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus God repaid the weakness that Abimelech had done to his past by murdering his seventy brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam, came, came on them. Okay. So here we see the second half of Jotham's curse come true, that Abimelech moves on to the next town, Thebes, and uh, he makes the fatal military mistake of fighting the last war. He goes and attempts to do the same tactics that he'd done in Shechem. He drives everyone back to the tower, and uh, as he's attacking the tower, the stronghold, uh, a woman drops an upper millstone off the top. That's... Uh, an upper millstone that you would use for grinding grain. And uh, she drops it off the top and it cracks Abimelech's skull. And uh, it's a particularly hum humiliating thing for a guy who's supposed to be the tough king to be killed by a woman and kind of killed with a typical woman's instrument, in a sense. It's a little bit like, I don't know what the equivalent today would be of dropping the kitchen chopping board on him or something like that. Uh, it's humiliating. <laughs> yeah, the mix of it, yeah, yeah, dropping the thermomix on him or something. Um, it's just humiliating for him. And although he's had his skull cracked, he's obviously conscious enough to realise what's happened. And uh, he calls out to his armour bearer to kill him so no one will be able to say that I was killed by a woman, which is kind of funny because we all know that he was killed by a woman. Um, and he dies this humiliating, painful death um, as he's trying to kill his own people. Um, and it's all just a total disaster. It ends up fulfilling the curse of Jotham uh, and bringing God's justice on both the people of Shechem and Abimelech for rejecting him as their king and for treating Gideon's family with contempt. They thought they'd been entering into this mutually beneficial arrangement, but they just end up with mutually assured destruction. Uh, and I think when you reflect on it, uh, this is partly why we're so frustrated with politics and politicians, um, that uh, we kind of want them to be God for us, to provide all the things, security, stability, etc., that only God can provide. Now, you think of Barack Obama's campaign about hope, the famous Barack Obama poster, or the slogan, yes, we can. But it turns out that, no, we can't. It's not quite that easy. Or Donald Trump, uh, make America great again. But honestly, he's got very little influence over that. Uh, the things that we, uh, the hopes that we invest in our leaders, the things that they try to sell us, they almost always can't achieve because they're not God. The things are not in their control. But then when they fail to deliver, we get really mad with them. We get angry. 
especially if they're not on our team. So you think of the, the anger and the vitriol that was hurled at Julia Gillard or uh, Tony Abbott, uh, really vicious, nasty sort of things, dehumanising kind of things that were said about them. And you think, well, why are people so angry? I think it's partly that we want our guy at the top, like the Shechemites did, and we're angry when it's someone else. But it's also investing our hopes in them, um, pinning our hopes on them to be God for us, to provide for our hopes and our dreams, to provide hope and a future. But we get enraged when they fail to deliver. And so then at the next election, we switch sides when we vote for the other guy and hope that he'll do it all for us and then get angry when they don't do it. And it just goes on and on. We just end up giving God the finger. We're out for our own glory, but we're just perpetually frustrated that we can't deliver and nor can the guys we keep looking out for, that we keep voting for. And we end up sort of consuming each other in our own frustration, just like Abimelech and the Shechemites do. Uh, because we're bad at picking good leaders. And in fact, the worst leader you've ever picked is yourself. Uh, you know that if you look at your heart. Giving God the finger, wanting to be king of your own life, is actually evil and it doesn't work. But the good news is that while we were all out trying to pick our own leader, trying to make ourselves king or investing our hopes in someone else, God was at work, even back then, to bring about his own king, to elect his own king in charge, someone who would do a decent job, someone who would do a great job, a king who's not out for his own glory, who doesn't send his people to die for him, but who gave up his glory to serve us and died to save his people. So this is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, that Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So it's the complete flip side of Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech is called my father is God, but Jesus is actually the one uh, whose father is God. And he doesn't want equality with God the way Abimelech does. He doesn't want to be the supreme ruler in that sense. Rather, he makes himself nothing. He doesn't want others to serve him. He serves them. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. And again, there's some striking similarities to Abimelech, that Abimelech dies this humiliating death. And so does Jesus. That's what crucifixion is supposed to be. It's a humiliating death. But unlike Abimelech, who dies trying to kill his people, Jesus dies this humiliating death to save his people. And Abimelech goes down in history as the guy who got killed by a woman in the most humiliating sort of way. But Jesus, because of his death, doesn't stay dead. Uh, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying that Jesus is the king, uh, and he's the king that we need. Not a king who wants to be God or thinks that he's God, but a king who actually is God and who still gave up all his privileges to serve us. Uh, most kings, like Abimelech, they send their people to their death for their glory. But Jesus gives up his glory and goes to his own death to save his people. Um, most kings exalt themselves at the cost of everyone else. But God exalted Jesus for the benefit of everyone else. It's not an election. You don't get to elect Jesus king. Uh, he is king, whether you like it or not. God's already done the electing. But who would be a better king than Jesus? Um, would you be a better king? Would I be a better king? Uh, would Malcolm Turnbull or Bill Shorten? No, I don't think so. Uh, God is the king. Uh, God's king is the king. Jesus is the king that we need. And so the question is whether you've recognised that, whether you've accepted Jesus as the king, because you won't find a better one. Uh, and he is the one who is king. I reckon one of the side products of that is that it really takes the pressure off our other leaders, off our politicians uh, and that. It takes the rage and the heat out of politics. Because if you know that Jesus is king, if you're trusting him to provide you with hope and a future and all that kind of stuff, then you don't have to be disappointed and angry and enraged when poor, human, sinful leaders like us fail to. Because you're not investing all your hopes in them. You've got your hopes pinned on Jesus. You can actually be relaxed and comfortable, to grab John Howard's phrase. Not because John Howard's in charge. Uh, lots of people didn't feel relaxed and comfortable about that. But relaxed and comfortable because Jesus is in charge. Um, and he is a good king, a good ruler. who sets us free from our sin and our fear of death. And all our frustrations and anxieties. To serve him and to be able to look for political leaders who are good rather than trying to pin our hopes on political leaders to be God. Shall we pray? Yeah. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus, who is a far better king than Abimelech, a far better king than us. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, remind us of that, teach us to pin our hopes on him um, and to serve him as uh, your king. For his sake. Amen.